Hi, this is Jack Gilbert. Welcome to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome one and all to The Probiotic Life. I'm your host, Ben Klenner. Today on the show, we explore the research that's going on pertaining to the microbiome. And we talk to Jack Gilbert, who is one of the leading scientists in the areas of microbial ecology. Now, if you've done any reading about the microbiome online, you've probably come across his name. I think I first heard about him when preparing for the interview with Dr. Embriette Hyde. Jack has been involved in many research projects and has published studies which relate to many areas of microbial ecology. This, um, all these areas include soil, cheese, Komodo dragons, a hospital microbiome, uh, hot, hot springs, oceans, and of course, the human microbiome. And we didn't even get to talk about one of his most ambitious projects, the Earth Microbiome Project. So you might ask, what did we talk about? Well, Jack shares with us a little bit of his story, and we cover a lot of ground relating to all things microbial. But the theme that really stood out to me, or the themes that stood out to me, is how we are all connected how we need to steward our environment wherever we are, and how we need to use our brains to critically evaluate the, inter- the information presented to, to us. So I really appreciated how Jack communicates the, these concepts and ideas, and I really enjoyed chatting to him. If you get some value out of this show and uh, what you learn, we'd appreciate if you took two minutes to click over to whatever podcast platform you're using and give us a rating and review. This is a simple way of supporting us to keep doing what we're doing. Now, it's taken me a little longer than anticipated to get sponsors on board, but this is still uh, in process. It's still uh, progressing. Um, But I will be doing more collaborations. So, I've got a book review that I'll be doing soon. And if you'd like to collaborate, then uh, reach out and connect. So, without further ado, here is the interview with Jack Gilbert. Our guest today is the Faculty Director of the Microbiome Centre, Professor at the Department of Surgery at the University of Chicago, Senior Scientist at the Marine Biological Laboratory, and the co-author of Dirt is Good with Rob Knight. Welcome to the show, Jack Gilbert. Hi, pleasure to be here. So it sounds like you have your hands in a lot of different pies. Yeah, well, it's um, I deal with a very complex discipline, right? So trying to understand how to regulate human health and wellness generally means that you have to take a very holistic um, angle to your research, which means you have to keep your fingers in all the pies, but also understand how to integrate across all those different disciplines in a way that will provide, sorry, my dog is licking my hand here, <laughs> in a way that will provide us uh, with a, um, a relevant strategy towards uh, improving patient outcomes in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And there is so much uh, research going on pertaining to the microbiome. I definitely want to de- delve right down into that. But but let's just go back a bit and um, hear a bit of your story. How, how did you actually get interested in um, microbiology in the first place? Yeah, my, my story is complicated and long, but when I was, uh, when I was at university, uh, the first book, 
that I ever got, the textbook that I ever got um, at university was a textbook on microbiology. And so being like, wow, I'm at university, I've got to learn a lot, it's going to be really fun. Um, I read that book cover to cover and thought it was fascinating, really didn't know anything about microbiology before that, but then left it aside because it meant I had to be in the lab and I wasn't really into that. And then somebody, uh, I came out of my degree and uh, somebody gave me a job looking at butterfly distributions in Africa. So I became a, an entomologist for a while. Um, and, then, uh, and then somebody offered me an opportunity to go and work in Antarctica for 18 months um, on, the, on the continent with a bunch of Australians for the Australian Antarctic Division. And, um, and I leapt at the chance, thought it was a great idea. And so, uh, but it meant I had to learn more microbial biology, microbiology and, and physical chemistry and, um, and get involved in trying to understand how microbes reacted and adapted to their environments in the world, right? And that became a, um, a, a, my new passion, as it were. I bounced around from then between biochemistry and physical dynamics and understanding how microbes work in the world. Um, and I've now somehow got involved in uh, human microbiome research over the last decade and have really started to apply a lot of the understanding of how the world works from a microbial ecosystem perspective into human bodies, right? So uh, he, the ocean and soils and plants are the same. It's just another ecosystem, and our body is just another ecosystem. And so I can treat it as an ecosystem, one that needs to be balanced, the one that needs... Uh, to where we can understand equilibria, you know, trying to get it where the uh, where the right kind of pattern works, so that people can maintain optimal health and wellness. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so you went to Antarctica for eighteen months, and I I was listening to uh, another talk you were doing um, that you were actually studying bacteria or, or the proteins from bacteria. Is that right? Yeah. So. I was working for the company Unilever. I mean, they make uh, street ice cream, walls ice cream, that kind of stuff, um, as well as a thousand other things. And they wanted me to go down there and find bacterial proteins, proteins that bacteria living in the ice and on the ice were excreting, right, that kept them from freezing. The idea is you can maybe take that protein and put it into frozen foods, such as ice cream or vegetables, and um, stop the ice crystals when you froze, freeze the food from damaging the food. You know, or stop the little that annoying little frosting that gets on the top of the ice cream when uh, in, in your freezer if you freeze thaw it too often. So they wanted to uh, me to find those proteins, identify them, bring them back for commercial use. Right. Okay. So, but you did. So that's when you were really getting into um, microbial ecology. Is that what, that's what really started it off there? Yeah. I mean, it's it's not exactly the most interesting thing looking for bacterial proteins. I thought it was fascinating right but there was also this amazing collection of lakes down there so um you know it's in a place called the Vestfold Hills near the Davis Research Station and it's an area where the ice sheets retreated um and over the last you know 10 20,000 years the land has actually risen up because the pressure of the ice sheet has been you know removed because you know it's several billion tons of ice on top of you just tend to compress things um and as the land rose up out of the ocean it, um, it actually isolated pockets of lakes. So you've got things that are extremely saline where all the water's evaporated. It's just got you know, super rich salt. And you've got uh, freshwater lakes where the ice water coming off of the, of the um, uh, continental ice sheet has made these freshwater lakes. So there's an enormous diversity of environments down there, like for microbes to live in. So we got, I personally got very fascinated. I was actually the only scientist on the Davis station other than meteorologists um, for about the entirety of the year 2000, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so uh, I got to spend, I got to basically uh, free reign to do all the kind of experiments that I wanted to do. So I got really interested in why and how these microbes were adapting to those environments. And that, that really kicked my interest into you know, understanding how microbes adapt and how they've survived and uh, their evolution as well as their metabolic capabilities, you know, how they eat and, and what they excrete, um, I, 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 you know, into high gear. I got really excited about it and mm-hmm. it, it shaped virtually the rest of my uh, research career. And so from that point until now, uh, what, what is your... What are you really excited about when you when you're doing research? What what aspect of research do you do you get excited about? 
So I get excited about um, uh, probably a really boring thing, but um, uh, systems biology. So um, I, I view the world in a very connected way, right? Things, anything I do has ripples that affect, you know, that spread out across the stream or the or the pond, and they affect other things, right? So trying to understand how microbes affect everything else in their environment. So, you know, how a single bacterium producing a chemical can shape um, not only other bacteria in the environment, but also fungi, also viruses, also, you know, plants or animals or humans, right, is is incredibly exciting to me. Capturing that complexity and trying to model it so I can predict it, so I can manipulate it, that's the that's the bit that really gets me going in the morning. Um, so, you know, for years I worked in oceanic environments and I was applying this kind of understanding to um, to model those environments so I could predict how microbial communities re- would respond to climate change, right? And, and then I got into soils and plants and, you know, trying to predict how microbial functions and meta- metabolism of the bacteria associated with plant roots, how it would affect plant growth and productivity. Um, and, you know, in, in, you know, in parallel, I've kind of got into that in human beings. Um, uh, and a lot of the work we do now is in human research is trying to understand how the microbial communities in our homes and on our, on our bodies um, that we're exposed to regularly, how their metabolic relationships, how the dynamic consortia of microbes in the environment around us and in our bodies is shaping um, our immune immunology, our health, our immune health, right? Um, and how that affects things like uh, how our brains work and how our, you know how much insulin we produce and how our muscles, uh, how active our muscles are and how much fat we put on, etc. So I love looking at all of the the complexity of the connections in our world and really engaging those in a, in a way that can help to advance the science and, and practice of uh, this kind of research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jack, you know, the, the, the probiotic life, the, the idea behind it is um, soil health equals human health and consequently uh, is, is ecological health and trying to piece, there's so much information there, trying to piece those together and in fact, a little while ago, we talked to Dr. Embriette Hyde from uh, Rob Knight's lab, um, talking about the human microbiome. And I'm very interested to hear that you, you know, have uh, research in the human microbiome, but in uh, you've done uh, research in the soil. And I'd be interested to know where is the the research strong in, in, in the, in that connection between soil and, and human health and where is it lacking at the moment? Yeah. So I, I refer to that idea as one health, which is, you know, a concept that was developed maybe 20, 30 years ago where, you know, uh, the health of our planet and our ecosystems, our soils, our oceans, our rivers, um, uh, and the health of our of our human populations are intrinsically linked. So that that's definitely a, a well established concept. But the the links between environmental health, ecosystem health, and human health are are really really quite um, numerous, right? And some of them are much better thought out and well established and evidenced than others. Um, so, for example, you know, if you have greater biological diversity in the world around you, um, there's there's more economic flexibility in the world. So, you know, you can you can have better food security if you have more plant biodiversity. Um, you know, if the if the climate changes, there's there's more crop diversity to access. But you know, from a microbial perspective, we know that um, the 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 microbes that you are exposed to, say, as a child. It from your environment can play a very significant role in shaping your immune response, how your immune system learns from the world, right? And what your ancestors, for example, were experiencing, selected for you know from uh, their their lifestyle, their microbial exposure, it selected an immune response, which in part has been passed down to you. So if your of all your ancestors were you know farmers working with dairy cows you know back you know two three thousand years 
then um, your immune responses that are programmed in part into your genome and are now part of your body will be expecting to almost see some of the bacteria and fungi and viruses associated with cows mm. and, um, and with the soils that cows interact with, right? Um, a great example of, of that kind of research is work we've done uh, with Carol Ober and, and Sperling at University of Chicago and groups out in Germany and in the University of Arizona on um, trying to understand why certain populations of farmers in the United States have very low rates of asthma and why certain populations of farmers have very high rates of asthma. And we focused this on two um, immigrant populations that came over in the 1700s and 1800s, um, the Amish and the Hutterites, um, who have a very close relationship to uh, their, you know, their farms and their environments. Um, but the Amish only have around 3 or 4% asthma in their population, and the Hutterites have between you know, 20 and 30% asthma in their population. Oh, wow. We wanted, we wanted to know why, you know, what was going on there. It turns out that the, despite the fact that at home, both the Amish and Hutterites, they, they don't really like technology, so there's no electricity, there's no iPads, no iPhones, no televisions. Um, uh, they're very clean, fastidious people at home, but they don't sterilize things. They use traditional cleaning methods. Um, but they also, uh, they also, both of them, drink um, a lot of fermented food products. They, they're both very good at, um, uh, they, they eat, uh, you know, unpasteurized cheese, unpasteurized milk. Uh, they, you know, they, they live what you and I would consider a very organic, healthy lifestyle, right? They eat a lot of, you know, traditional German farming foods, right? Um, but they, they have very different interactions with their farms. So the Amish live on their farms, their front door is like 50 feet from the barn door. The kids in the morning are working on the farm before they go to school. And when they get back from school, they're still working on the farm and, you know, until they go to sleep. Um, it's a very strong work ethic. Um, and they have this constant interaction with the animals and the, and the dust and the dirt and the farming environment in that space. Whereas the Hutterites don't. The, only the men over the age of 14 are allowed to uh, go and work on an off-site, highly technologically you know, processed farm, um, which is distal and distant from where the uh, housing environment is. So the kids, when they're growing up in the early stages of life, never get exposure to the kind of farming environment that the Amish get exposed to. Both the Amish and the Hutterites are kind of like sister populations. They have genetic differences, sure, because they're, you know, they've, they've been separated for a while. But on the whole, they have the same kind of genetic predisposition towards asthma. So, um, uh, but the, this, this one dichotomy in the fact that the um, uh, Amish kids get exposed to lots of bacteria, fungi and viruses from the animals and the Hutterite kids don't, has, has almost led to this different immune um, relationship with their environment. And, you know, we, we actually went in, in, in a little bit further and took dust from the Amish kids' bedrooms and dust from the Hutterite kids' bedrooms and exposed it to allergic mice, right? Um, so we blew it into the nasal passages of mice that had an allergy. And the Amish dust protected the mouse from its allergy. Wow. Uh, whereas the Hutterite dust didn't, right? So, you know, the, the bedrooms that these kids are sleeping in, um, the Amish bedrooms have... Um, elements in the dust that the kids are breathing in all the time, which uh, is actually protective. And it looks like those elements come from the cows and the horses on the farm. Mm -hmm. And and that's understandable that you are interested in systems biology because or ecology because of all of these like complex complexities, all these I intricate um, connections between dust and and. Um, immune response yeah i mean it's huge i mean you have to understand the, the 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 link between say your body um the animals and plants in your environment the soils which you're playing in the air which you're breathing the different you know the thousands of different species of bacteria virus and fungi that that you're interacting with your own historical immune response based on your ancestors relationship to the environment plus idiosyncrasies about you know um whether a kid's had a surgery or antibiotics or you know how they were born even whether born vaginally or cesarean um you know to even down to how many members of the household live in that environment i mean it really is it's almost epidemiological science, right? When we do epidemiology, we study why, what are the associations between people and their disease? 
and their lifestyle and their environment and their mm. disease, right? Uh, but we're adding bacterial or microbials, so fungal, fungal, bacterial, archaeal, viral components into that story and really starting to understand the me- mechanics, the you know, mechanistic relationship between, say, your microbial exposure and how your immune system develops and what implications that has for health development. Um, and it goes way beyond asthma, right? It goes into how your brain develops, you know, um, your attention, your cognition goes into, you know, your ability to maintain weight control, your relationship with food. It goes, you know, down to how, you know, how the mitochondria, the little powerhouses that live inside each of our cells, um, how, how they function and how therefore our muscles grow and develop or atrophy, you know, um, it's, it's huge. It's, uh, everything touches everything. This is, um, you know, uh, an old adage, but the, the, the story is the same we, the, the connections with our universe are quite extraordinary, right? And, uh, we ignore them at our peril. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when, when you you speak about this, it reminds me, um, I was reading a book, The Secret Life of Your Microbiome, and I think I might have heard of this phrase before, but um, the Japanese call it shinrin-joku, the forest bathing, how you you get out basically into nature and are absorbing everything around you. And, you know, that's what I like to do with, you know, with my kids. You know, I've got a, a three-year-old and, and a one-year-old, and we just get out the back and... Look, I don't mind if if uh, Ivy, my little one year old, eats a bit of mulch uh, because it's, I know I know that I've been looking after the place um, pretty good. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> well, you're not if you're not if you're not pouring arsenic all over the floor, or you know, as long as there's no major pollution in in your backyard that the kids could like you know sit down, mash up into a mud pie and eat. And it's unlikely. It's, you know, it's, there's always the possibility that something could go mm-hmm. wrong in any situation on Earth, right? Um, in any any time, there are horrible accidents that always happen. But uh, um, I guess my issue is that if you, but all the evidence that we appear to be generating, and you know, as a scientist, I'm I'm constantly hedging on the side of caution. But all the evidence that we appear to be generating is suggesting that there may actually be more severe complications associated with severing our relationship to a rich biodiverse microbial world right like mud and, and dirt and plants and animals etc then there is it by exposing ourselves to that environment and, and a lot of this comes down to the fact that you know number one you know through vaccination programs and through public health works we've eradicated the vast majority of extremely dangerous diseases which kids could be exposed to in that situation which would kill them right <laughs> so we've done a good job um but you know, by by taking the idea of germophobia to its to its infinite conclusion, we've almost gone too far in eradicating all microbial exposure that our kids might get, and that that could be leading to children developing asthma and allergies and various other chronic, um, life threatening and lifelong conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the 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 paradox is always: look, um, you go on a farm. And uh, let's say um, you interact with a cow and you don't wash your hands and you stick your fingers in your mouth, for example, um, and it just so happens that that cow has a dangerous pathogenic form of E. coli in its gut and you got it on your hands and you put it in your mouth and let's say that you are susceptible to that infection and you have to be susceptible. It's not like I give all the kids um, a dangerous pathogen, it's going to make all of them sick, but you have to be susceptible. Then there's always the possibility that you're going to get sick and die, mm. right? Because uh, it's, it's the N of 1, it was the lowest common denominator. There's always somebody in a population of people, you take 100 people, there's always going to be someone in that population that could uh, possibly get sick based on some level of exposure. Now, do we live our lives um, with that relationship in mind? Yes. You know, practice common sense wash your hands after interacting with a with a dog you know the, the or a pig or a cow the the uh the amish do right they wash mm. their hands they're quite fastidiously clean but they're also breathing in lots of things in the air right and that's stimulating their immune system and they're helping to train it it's not like they're stuffing gobbles of dirt into their face or you know eating cow manure uh, they're not they you know they're, they're normal human beings but um they're interacting with the environment in a way that helps to e- e- enlighten and, and educate their immune response so it's balance 
you know, it's balance in life, but it's balance in common sense. Um, yeah, there are dangerous pathogens out there that could make you sick. So wash your hands after eating, you know, after preparing raw chicken. Um, you know, wash your hands before dinner. You know, try not to stick dog feces in your mouth. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's, it's 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 logic, right? Unfortunately, um, and this is this is a truism. Uh, so when I when I speak to like the uh, public health and concern groups in say the United Kingdom or Europe or or the US. Um, they're always like, well, look, if we said, please, can everybody use their common sense? Um, you'd have a lot more people not using their common sense. So we have to say blanket statements, right? Mm. Blanket statements like, you know, um, be extremely careful. Just don't go near those things. And my, 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 my relationship with that kind of strategy is, yeah, you're probably saving lives by doing that. But is it also true that you could be increasing or decreasing the quality of life and potentially pe threatening people with lifelong health complications because of that information. And so our research programs are trying to find the delicate balance between those two components. And potentially, one day in the future, for people that cannot, due to socioeconomic factors and geographic factors, access the kind of diverse world, the forest bathing that you're talking about, or, you know, get out into a backyard because they just don't have access to that. If you go down to some of the inner city communities we work in, you'll see that very evidently. Yeah? Um, uh, because they can't access that, maybe we could provide a an intervention, like a, a formulation, a probiotic, a, you know, a, an, an aerosol spray or whatever that would help their immune systems to be trained adequately to prevent them from developing some of these chronic lifelong conditions like asthma, like food allergies, um, uh, you know, other chronic conditions like diabetes. If we can, mm. if we can figure out a way to package up the wild world, right, and put it into treatments that would enable people living in urban environments to also benefit, then we'd be in a better space, right? Because unfortunately, um, there's 7.5 billion people on this planet now. A uh, vast majority of them are moving into urban environments. Um, and unless you can turn that progress on its head, which would be very damaging for the environment because there's literally just not enough land to go around, then you'll be in a situation where this becomes essential if we want people to live healthier, more productive, lifelong lives. Mm -hmm. So it sounds, Jack, like instead of um, improving on the what nature has already provided, it, it's it sounds like you're working to... Uh, find ways to utilize what we already have around us better. Precisely, and, you know, as well as develop you know new interventions that you know could be leveraged to help children who are not so advantaged. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, some of the highest rates of asthma in the United States are in South Chicago, where where I live and work, right? And uh, there's some incredibly poor communities there. The poorest neighborhood in the United States outside of the Native American neighborhoods, which are even more brutally poor, um, is in South Chicago, so Robbins, Illinois. Um, and they have some of the highest rates of asthma in, in, in the country, right? Um, yeah, I mean, there's lifestyle problems there. You know, there are obviously crime problems, but they don't really intervene. It's lifestyle problems, but there's exposure to the environment. You know, they have more chemical exposure. They have they live in a poor place, so they you know have more air particle exposure from more pollution, air pollution, um, and and you know and, and generally their their diets are poorer, and they have less access to you know animals in the wild world and backyards and play areas and forests, etc. They just don't get that. I mean, they, you know, when you're dirt poor, it's not a consideration. So mm. um, unless you live in the country, <laughs> so. Um, so, you know, it, it's, I think it's beholden to us to try and figure out ways to bring one health to them um, through policy changes, uh, you know, improving uh, their air quality, improving quali access to quality water supplies, improving access to food, right, healthy food, um, as well as um, figuring out ways to intervene in providing you know, uh, animal and and potentially soil and plant microbes into their environments, right? You know, maybe there's a way of creating a indoor air freshener that could uh, could help stimulate immune responses. You know, we're nowhere near that yet, um, but the, that's the that's the way I like to think. You know, what are the benefits mm -hmm. to the environment, and how can we package it in ways that can help people who cannot access it um, uh, have those benefits? 
For sure, yeah. Uh, it's interesting you talk about air quality because uh, I've been uh, emailing back and forth with uh, a company in Canada, and they actually use like a, a living wall as a biofilter. They use the the um, air filter system of the entire building to pump air through a living biofilter wall, and it takes out something like ninety five percent of the VOCs. Because of the microbes in in living in the roots of the the plants, they're actually right. incorporating that into a building. So there is stuff going on, but it's like, how do we get that to everybody? How do we get it um, connected to everybody? Yeah, and those are really expensive and costly to maintain, right? Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, they uh, those walls are really difficult, and most of the time, you put in these biologically living walls as a you know, new buildings because they look cool and because they improve the air quality and you can even, you know, pump wastewater from the building through it in order to help clean it out before, you know, you reuse it in toilet flushings, etc. Great ideas, wonderful ideas. Usually six months to a year down the line, they've become obsolete because they, the people looking after the building don't have the money or don't have the time to care for them. Um, right. And that's the that's the sad, annoying thing about architectural interventions, is uh, you can come up with the best ideas, but unless somebody's actually got the money and and effort to actually maintain them, they uh, they fall by the wayside. So, so in terms of the the research that you're doing, and I know there's a lot of people doing research, um, which sometimes it seems frustrating that you know papers get p- published and it's like this research could you know potentially change the world but doesn't seem to get the attention that it deserves how how are you going about getting all that research and and relating it to the public well for me it's about actually going out there and talking to them um i pride myself on finding ways innovative ways to communicate with people um, that makes the science accessible um, uh, well, makes the findings accessible, if not the science, right? Uh, it, uh, and I, I, I view this in the same way as I would anything. Like if, if I go to a talk and a physicist is talking about, you know, advanced string theory associated with, uh, you know, a, a, a gravity wave, um, I'm going to struggle intensely to understand him or her, right? Mm. Um, uh, so let's say she figures out a way to make that information more accessible to me, I will be happier. Even as a, a scientist and a professor in one of the most, you know, one of the best universities in the world, that's irrelevant. I mean, it doesn't mean I'm an expert in everything. It just means I know something about something, right? I, I know less about, uh, you know, everybody's an expert in what they do. You're an expert in what you do. My plumber is an expert in what he does. My gardener is an expert in what she does. Um, so I, if, if any of those people want to be able to convince me to do something, I want them to be able to talk to me in a way which helps me to access their level of information in a way that I can make an adequate decision. And that's mm-hmm. what the public wants. Mm-hmm. They want us to treat them the way we want to be treated, right? So it's a very simple adage. And your mum's been telling you that for years, treat, uh, <laughs> treat others as you want to be treated, right? So I go out and talk to the public and... Um, I, and I talk to church groups and I go to um, you know, rotary groups and I go to agricultural communities and I talk to them. Um, you know, I talk to very large audiences. I'll talk to three people. I, I take the time to go out and actively try and communicate these ideas to the public. Why? Because especially in this current political climate, climate that we're dealing with in the United States and in, in the UK, Understanding and getting people to realize that scientists are, are just people working for the common good and not for some weird hidden agenda is the most important thing we can possibly do for the future of our, our species. Mm. Um, because I really do believe that scientific advances are the only way we're going to keep the species alive and healthy for long enough right, uh, to actually make a, an impact on improving the quality of our planet. Um, like it or not, we, we have to be stewards of this world or we have to leave it, right, because otherwise we're going to kill it. And the only way we can do that is if we get public support. If people mm-hmm. start voting uh, for science, as it were, or for a, sci- a popular scientific agenda, just as they did in the you know, 1940s, 50s, 
you know, in the 60s in, in the United States and in Europe. You know, scientists were, in the mid, mid part of the 19th century and in the mid part of the 20th century, scientists were, you know, popularized. We were, we were seen as, you know, people who were going to make a big difference in the health and, uh, health and uh, you know, uh, prosperity of our world. Uh, and now, to a certain extent, we're demonized you know, as self-serving uh, people going out there and you know, desperately screwing up the planet. Um, that has to be turned on its head. Mm. And the only way that can be turned on its head is through popular opinion. Otherwise, the world's... I, I, I don't... Too much of a, sooth, a doomsayer, but otherwise the world is in peril. <laughs> because, you know, if we can't do the research that will help us to make the, uh, the correct choices then people will make choices without any evidence. And when you do that, you end up with very dangerous situations which can be harmful to people, economies, um, and, and the fabric of our populations. Mm-hmm. So what would you say is some of the, the common uh, myths or misconceptions um, about, uh, at least specifically, the, the microbiome that you see or that you hear, like the hype that's going on? Well, a lot of the hype that is out there is is driven by desperation, right? And it's always the way. If you go back 20 years when we were talking about the Human Genome Project and, you know, looking at genes and figuring out uh, which genes control which diseases, uh, there was huge interest right then from desperate people who were either dying or very, very sick, chronic diseases, about what this could do for them. And, you know, they, they did all their research, they went out to conferences, they got engaged, they're very excited. Um, and, you know, people were talking about the potential of this. But the issue was the potential was still decades away in being realized. Um, now, you, you could say the same is true for the microbiome field. Like, you know, the potential is huge. The accessibility of the microbiome in respect to what you can do to manipulate it is far greater than it is for human genome because you can change your diet, right? You can take probiotics if, if you know which ones are relevant. You can uh, alter things in your lifestyle that will have an effect upon the microbiome and therefore could potentially influence your disease state, right? And so people are like, okay, brilliant. I get this. I can do something. I couldn't do anything with the genome. I couldn't you know, swap out my genes at home, um, or manipulate them in some way, but I can do something about the microbiome. So it's more accessible to the public, which creates, uh, it's, it's, that's great, but it also creates the potential for abuse, right? Um, and, you know, in, for example, fecal microbiome transplants, people taking the stool from a healthy person and putting it into a sick person. You know, we've seen in, in uh, reports and, and from uh, doctors' uh, discussions with us that people are like, well, you know, I'll just, I'll take uh, anybody's stool. I'm just desperate. I have, you know, chronic inflammation. I have, uh, you know, major problems with my bowel. The doctors haven't been able to help. The antibiotics they're giving me aren't doing anything. So I'll just uh, take a, you know, a tube. I'll stick it on my bum and I'll pump some poop up there. And I've had people even saying, could I, could I use my dog's poop? I love my dog. He's very, you know, great. But so, you know, therefore, is his poop good for me, right? And you're like, you're like I don't know. <laughs> um, probably not. Maybe. Who knows? Um, but I would suggest you don't try that experiment because you're experimenting on yourself with something which we have very little understanding of the complications and you could mm-hmm. make your life infinitely worse. And so that's the problem is people taking the science into their own hands and trying to apply it. And so... As a scientist, you then hit a, a, a tipping point. At what point do I say, I'm, I shouldn't tell the public about this exciting uh, area because if I do, they're liable to take matters into their own hands and hurt themselves versus I need to be able to talk to people about this because it's an exciting area and uh, we need people to be aware that scientists are working on solutions to try and help them, Right. And it's a really fine balancing point. So I'm, mm. I'm careful in, in nearly every talk to put in caveats and very vocally specific caveats, not just like um, a note on a slide. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll say, for example, there's a study where we've shown in mice that we can um, add a probiotic um, alongside an immunotherapy in order to treat cancer. And the probiotic seems to stimulate the immune system and help the immunotherapy fight the cancer, right? Um, it's great. It's fasc- fascinating. It's in a mouse. 
you know, and the mouse is yeah. the human. And so, I, at the, you know, when I finish saying this really exciting thing, I say, look, you got in no way should anybody in the audience suffering from cancer go out and start taking probiotics randomly in order to treat their cancer. It, you know, people have done that and died. Um, go and talk. If you're interested in this, go and talk to your cancer provider and say, look, I've heard about this. Uh, what do you think about it? Because only they know what you are going through, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't. Yeah. And I don't. I don't know your medical records. I don't know your history. I don't know the state of your cancer. I don't know what cancer you've got. It's not even proven as a therapy for humans. And I'm very, I, I literally, I'll talk to the audience like that. And that wakes them up. That's like, oh, okay, right. This is just research. You know, it's not, it's not a, you know, Dr. Jack Gilbert giving them a recommendation. This is where the research is going. It's exciting. It's new. It's bleeding edge, but it's, it needs to be coached in, in caveats and you need to work with your primary care physician. You need to work with your oncologist to be able to see if this is even remotely feasibly relevant. Um, at the end of the day, if you want to waste your money, you can go out there and buy probiotic formulations from any, any major pharmacy or you know, even some of the drug stores and, and grocery stores and, and take them, right? It's not going to hurt you. It's very unlikely to hurt you. Um, and so why not? But don't give up your don't give up your cancer treatment in you know and just start taking probiotics because I pretty much guarantee you you'll die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And that that's that's the problem. Yeah, we've got to be really careful. I mean, snake oil aside, snake oil is why we have the regulation, right? It's to prevent people from producing things which are bullshit, right? But our uh, our main goal as scientists is to be able to tell people about the exciting things we've done but generate the research which will actually lead to new clinical solutions and and that's what i'm interested in jack you know when you come upon a clinical solution and i understand there's there's uh in the microbiome research there's just so much variables but when you do come upon a, a solution how long does it take to actually get into the hands of not only just the, the general knowledge, but like when doctors are actually starting to recommend that. Yeah, um, it can take a very long time. It's, um, for example, uh, you know, it can take between five and ten years for a drug, a simple chemical, uh, to get approved. Uh, there's a good reason for that. I know it's disappointing for everybody when a new therapy comes on the line, but you got a real choice. Um, you can, you know, let's say we just made drugs freely available. There was no regulation, right? There'd be people spending an enormous amount of money and time on drugs which had no efficacy, right? And people Mm. out there, unfortunately, are extremely unethical and would take full advantage of you to do that. Uh, You just have to look at the horrible things human beings do to each other on a regular basis to understand that that will happen. It has happened in the past, and that's why we have regulation. That's why we have a burden of proof that seems, seems extreme, but a burden of proof which is absolutely necessary to stop people being taken advantage of. Now, with some of the therapies that we're coming up with, you can take them now. A lot of them are unregulated. You can go into your store and buy a probiotic, right? There is an enormous choice. Which probiotic is, is, would be the best? We don't know. I can honestly say it. We just don't know. The vast majority of things, we don't know. We have some good double-blind clinical trial data for things like children's diarrhea, which shows that lactobacillus lactobacillus rhamnosus GG would be an effective probiotic for treating it. But for the vast majority of diseases, we have no freaking idea, right? Um, And we we got our own up to that. And we're developing the science that will help us to answer those questions, but we're not there yet. But we need that regulation, and I know, it, I know it's frustrating. Trust me, it frustrates scientists as well that it takes so long and so much money to get the proof that would enable people to say, yes, you can use this effectively um, uh, and be recommended by a doctor for a particular treatment. But trust me, it's necessary. The, the Federal Drug Administration in the US is um, one of the most maligned but one of the most necessary things out there because there are horrible people out there that will take advantage of you and sell you snake oil and just look at history it happens all the time and they don't care they well they'll sell you they'll sell you you know 
They'll sell you water with a drop of something in it and tell you it works with no proof mm-hmm. whatsoever, right? Uh, and you'll buy it and you'll pay hundreds of dollars for it because you're desperate. And those people do not care if you're desperate. They don't care about you. They only care about the money. And that's that's the that, sad that's, truth about humanity. It is. It's, it's unfortunate, isn't it? That So I, I'd like to sort of switch that over to the other side where you, you mentioned common sense. Um, and it reminds me of uh, something you were, you were talking in another interview about, about um, taking the samples out of a bathroom or out of a, like a toilet store. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, we've done a lot of... Speak a, speak a bit about that because I, I was interested about how, what happened when it wasn't cleaned. Well, um, so, yeah, so when we, you know, we were looking at the microbial organisms and the, mostly their DNA that were present on the floors. So as soon as a floor was washed, right, sterilized with a, you know, a bleach solution um, in, a, in, a, in a publicly accessible toilet area, um, the, uh, within an hour... You know, there was nothing there, and then within an hour, there was uh, about five hundred thousand bacterial cells per square inch, <laughs> because wow. you know people are shedding thirty-eight million microbial cells from their body every hour. So anybody that used that toilet environment was shedding bacteria into it from their skin, from their mouth, from their breath, um, you know, uh, from their nether regions. <laughs> um, it just happens, right? We sh- we like little bacterial shedders all the time. Um, Bacteria are very, 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 very small. Very small. They're invisible, right? You cannot see them with the naked eye. They're very, very small. So, you know, we, we forget how small they are. We, we picture them as these giant, ugly, uh, scary things, but, you know, they're infinitesimally <laughs> small. Um, and uh, so you know, what we found was that when you stopped cl- sterilizing the floor, uh, you know, uh, that the the bacterial population on there kind of stabilized. And it stabilized around a microbial population that was mostly, um, you know, soil and plant and animal and human bacteria and very little uh, human gut bacteria. And it's because the human gut bacteria aren't very good at surviving outside the human body, right? You know, they're, they're anaerobic mostly. They don't like oxygen, right? Kills them. Um, and the ones that can survive just kind of like lay in, lay in wait and wait for a nice, warm, wet uh, anaerobic environment to come back, which is the reason you wash your hands when you go to the toilet, right? So you don't put those back in your body if, if they are dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the vast majority of things on the floor were completely harmless, um, you know, 90% of them, unless you, of course, you had uh, a compromised immune system and a gaping wound in your body and you were rubbing it in there, right? <laughs> um, which is not a good idea. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it was kind of telling that you can sterilize the floor as much as you want, but on the whole, just washing it with warm, soapy water is perfectly fine. Uh, the bleaching does probably very little to remove the impact in a public restroom to remove the likelihood that someone's going to uh, get sick and die. Of course, in a hospital where you do have people with immune compromisation, you know, who are immune compromised, who have a damaged immune system, where you do have people who are extremely sick, where you do have people with gaping wounds, that kind of cleaning is necessary. Is mm-hmm. it necessary in your house? No. Not unless you're immune compromised and you have gaping wounds open. You know, um, context is everything. And again, this comes down to what does the public health community supposed to tell people? Because if they say, look, use your common sense, and people don't, then they're, they're trapped, right? So they have to tell you what uh, you should be doing, which is, uh, you know, the lowest common denominator, doing what you can to protect the, the most vulnerable people in our population. Um, and unfortunately, that might have negative consequences for the people who aren't vulnerable. Mm. So yeah, I guess coming back to the the common sense, it, it there there's a necessity to, like you said, to make sure that you know, whoever whoever's um, oh, how, how do I say it? the doctors or physicians, for example, are, are saying like this is what we need to do to keep everybody safe, but we can take that as yep, yeah, this is this is what um, doctors need to talk about. But let's try and use some of our common sense as well. Yeah. Or is that is that something that you can't really agree with? No, I mean, you have to listen to your doctor. You have to be informed, and you have to accept the fact that um, whatever whatever anybody tells you, you have to rationalise it within your own head. Now, you know, this is what's caused a 
the, the, the unfortunate um, issues around vaccination, right? One extraordinarily badly performed study that was you know refuted and then disproven in 23 other studies has caused um, people to start questioning the validity of, of vaccines which protect their children, which has led to a, a spike in children's deaths um, from protected diseases which are entirely preventable. If we, if we go back to a state where there are no vaccination, then all of what I'm saying becomes irrelevant. You know, the, the environment, again, becomes extremely dangerous. Mm. And uh, the, the diseases such as asthma and food allergies are the least of our freaking problems uh, because, um, you know, childhood mortality rates will go through the roof. It will have 50 million people dying a year of, uh, of you know, preventable diseases. And, uh, you know, we'll go back to the 19th century where if one of your kids died, you would dress them up in a nice suit and have your living children stand next to the corpse uh, who was sitting down um, and take a photo. <laughs> you know, and you, wow. you live side by side with death on a regular basis. Mm. Um, yeah, we don't have the, the Black Plague uh, rampant around. Right. You know, Black Plague, you know, we don't have a good vaccine problem, vaccination program for, so we have to rely on, you know, making sure that we have good public health works. But tuberculosis, um, mm-hmm. polio, measles, um, you know, we're talking about diseases which kill people, and if they don't kill them, leave lifelong impediments. Measles causes um, major neurodevelopmental problems in children. You know, you get autism-like symptoms from measles. So if you don't take the dead freaking vaccine, right, you're going to get the live infection, which will cause autism. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Jesus Christ, people. You know, and. But no, but I'm lying to people because somehow I'm considered to be in the pocket of Big Pharma. And, uh, and you know, uh, this is the lack of trust people have in scientists nowadays. It's mm. just, it's, it's terrifying. Um, yeah, that's the problem. That's the issue that we're going to have to live with is that, you know, common sense isn't exactly one of humans, human beings' virtues, right? We're not good at it. So we have to balance it between looking at... Um, being informed and understanding how to critically evaluate evidence and then and then making our own minds up but if your doctor tells you to do something i strongly recommend you do it and then you try and listen to things like your podcast um and or you know or read books that uh you know balance out the evidence and and try and critically evaluate that it's it's hard though because as with all these things, even Andrew Wakefield, the, the guy who did the crap study, um, I mean, he'll go out there and he'll say, I've got compelling evidence. And he'll tell people that. And people trust him because he's a doctor. Mm. Right? The, um, if you've got one doctor telling you one thing and 99 doctors telling you another, which, which ones are you going to listen to? <laughs> you know, and the, the, you know, the conspiracy theorists inside you will tell you it's the one doctor because the 99 are obviously in the in cahoots with the big pharma companies who are making pharma, yeah. and some other. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> just, it's just a, if you believe in that, then, you know, go and hide in a bunker. Stay away from me, please, because I don't, <laughs> I don't, you, know, you, you, you terrify me with your basic rhetoric. But that's the reason we got to better educate people, get out there and talk to them. We can't yeah. hide away. We can't, you know, ignore, or ignore the problem. Because you know, otherwise mm. people end up voting for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> So um, let's come back to what. What are some of the things that you're working on at the moment that you're you're uh, excited about? So yeah, I mean we're working on new approaches to augment children's immune systems so that they don't suffer from food allergies. We're working on really interesting uh, programs about trying to identify whether people are going to respond to certain drugs and therapies like immunotherapies for breast cancer based on the microbiome. We're working on uh, therapies such as um, butyrate supplements. These are chemicals produced by bacteria in the gut, but some children with uh, autism and food allergies don't produce the, they produce butyrate, but not, uh, they produce other compounds along with the butyrate, which stop the butyrate from working. So we're trying to overwhelm that system and pump butyrate into their gut in a way that they can make it accessible. So there are loads of really interesting research areas, um, yeah, well, probably way too many to mention, but it's it's an incredibly exciting time. Mm-hmm. So, but you have your hand in all of them, like you're overseeing them. Is that how it works? Well, yeah, I um, I collaborate with a vast array of people. Um, you know, postdocs, graduate students, uh, other uh, professors, um, researchers in the field. 
even try and launch companies to help get venture capital that will help us to develop some of those therapies and get them into the clinic or into the shelves as quickly as possible. But yeah, we, you know, it's a, it's a community. We really are a village. Mm. Um, not just, and I, you know, yes, I have my fingers in those pies and I'm helping to drive that research forward. But, um, you know, leading research is a, is a becoming increasingly um, difficult because, you know, you can't do everything that's necessary in order to get the research done. Mm. Mm-hmm. And any, any sort of uh, research uh, with the soil, I, you know, I'm really interested in, uh, came from sort of a, a horticultural background. There's tons, um, you know, research into you know, how to improve uh, the quality of soil, how to examine ways to um, uh, make the plants more productive, more resilient, and more resistant to stress and disease. Um, you know, ways to, uh, you know, uh, pr- negate the use for fertilizers um, and negate the use for um, pesticides and herbicides in order to, uh, reduce the potential ecological consequences of those treatments. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a ton of research going on in, the, in that space and all of it, you know, contributes to the one health mandate, the health of our planet and the health of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really like that idea. So I guess um, to, to sort of round it out, uh, you know, this podcast is called The Probiotic Life. From a, a researcher's point of view, what does the probiotic life look like to you? Well, it looks like, I mean, a probiotic is a very particular definition. I take an organism, I add it into your body, and it's supposed to have a beneficial effect, right? But um, if, I, if I stretch the, the definition out from there, um, then it's about examining the role in which a living biology, the world around us, can be leveraged in order to um, maintain health and have a beneficial impact upon health. And that includes, you know, playing outside, getting dirty, playing with animals, you know, being using common sense, but being more engaged with the world around us um, and trying to promote access and uh, interaction with biological diversity. Um, uh, you know, so making sure we keep our environments biodiverse and healthy so that we can have access to them and so that we can be biodiverse and healthy. Mm -hmm. Jack, I really appreciate your time. Is there any, um, you have that, uh, your book that, or the book that you uh, co-authored. Where where can people get that and anything else that you want to share with us? Yeah, uh, in Australia, I I don't know if it's on sale in Australia at the moment. I'm not sure. Um, it's you definitely buy it on Amazon. I know some of my family in Australia have bought the book on Amazon. But um, uh, yeah, it's a uh, dirt is good. Um, it's a it's a guide, a an encyclopedia almost uh, that which has a, a list of all the questions uh, that my colleague Rob and I have ever been asked. By, uh, by the public um, and scientists about how the microbiome relates to the health of themselves during pregnancy and during childhood. Um, and, and so it's a way of informing people about the decisions they can make based on the evidence that is available. You know, uh, we went through that a lot when we were young parents and we want to be able to provide people with the evidence that will help them to make appropriate decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Jack, for your time and uh, thanks for being on The Probiotic Life. Yeah, no worries. Take care. Mm -hmm. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks again, Jack Gilbert, for taking the time to share with us and thank you all for listening. So what did you learn from this episode? Was there one thing that really stood out to you? I found Jack really relatable, Uh, although I felt like I could have asked some better quality questions. But give me some feedback on that. I love to hear feedback. So uh, drop me a line, connect with me. And as always, I'll put the links up in the show notes. And we love it when you, go, when you give us a rating and review. Our hope for you is that this will inspire you to go get out into nature and to live a probiotic life. So thanks all for listening. And until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.
<laughs> microbes, microbes everywhere.